Welcome to TD Cowan Insights, a space that brings leading thinkers together to share insights and ideas shaping the world around us. Join us as we converse with the top minds who are influencing our global sectors. Welcome once again to another episode of our Intellectual Capital Podcast. I'm Larry Wiesneck, co-head of investment banking at TD Securities. And once again, I'm joined by my good friend and former colleague, David Erickson, senior fellow at the Wharton School. With that, let me turn it over to David to get things started. Thanks, Larry. Well, now that I guess we're back in school, and this is kind of the back to school edition of the podcast, I thought it would be helpful to start from what are you expecting this fall in terms of expectations for the markets, the Fed, et cetera, to really kind of set the table for the rest of the podcast. David, as you and I have joked before, and we will probably many times again in the future, if I had that crystal ball, I'd probably be doing something else. So I wish I could tell you specifically, but I, what, I, what I do think I can say in a more kind of general sense is hopefully a uh, return to longer term trends. We've lived with an, an enormous amount of noise the last three years, starting with the the pandemic, lots of interventions, obviously, and the distortions that are, were created by a lot of that. And I think the final you know leg of that has been the last eighteen months of very active central bank uh, involvement in terms of interest rate uh, uh, moves, et cetera. And I, whether we're we're done or not, we're close to done with this most recent regime in terms of tightening. And so I think the market is, is dealing with that and has been for the last few months. And my hope is that it, as we get through the rest of the fall, we, we really start moving beyond what is the next you know action from the Fed. And we're focused more on uh, the real economy and then what that means for, in terms of valuations or valuations high, are they low? Um, where are spreads? And we're doing that in a way where Mr. Market's driving it rather than intervention. So it's been, I guess, several months now since uh, the TD Cowan merger, I thought we should start with how things are progressing and any recent developments that are no- notable. Well, I appreciate you um, you asking about that. Most typically on this conversation, talk about what's happening in the markets and with our clients. But uh, happy to you know communicate that we continue along in our integration of the the businesses. It's it's boring to talk too much about what we're doing internally, but I'll just highlight that I think we're better organized to serve our clients than before. Um, when you bring the two organizations together, in our case, uh, the the strengths of Cowan and then the strengths of TD Securities, as we stitch those uh, together, uh, we can just serve clients across more uh, products. And at the same time, we can also deliver across uh, more sectors. And so from that standpoint, if you're really good with, with the progress, we're starting to see where the cross-selling is allowing our clients to benefit from one-stop shopping. And that certainly is uh, what the goal is. We're still in the early days. We have to remind ourselves that you know all of us as professionals want to see you know what we, what we really need to do tomorrow, we want to have seen done yesterday. So you know, not satisfied with the pace, but that's just because I'm uh, a generally um, you know uh, positive person and think we can do more and do it faster. But I'm really excited about that. And just a a few examples uh, in terms of things that we've been able to do. We've recently uh, been able to announce a situation where as the sell-set advisor, 
uh, we were able to bring the buyer to the table and, and then with a, a separate tree, um, introduce, you know, our leverage financing team and be a, a significant part of the, the buy side financing. And so there, you know, from the standpoint of our ability to help our client, we help multiple clients. We help the, the, the company we were selling for, we brought a sponsor in who was the best buyer and, and now we're their partner going forward as well. When I say we, of course, it's a collective way because a portion of that was, you know, uh, TD Cowan. Another portion was TD Securities. Just to highlight, we're still operating two broker dealers and are in the process of, you know, doing the back end integration. But that's just an example of something that both organizations previously couldn't have necessarily delivered, right? Um, you know, at, at Cowan, we didn't have the um, ability to uh, leverage finance uh, around LBOs. And so we wouldn't have been able to deliver that before. And from the TD security side, adding in the M&A business from Cowan has allowed them to get both sides of the trade. So anyway, that's just one example. And there's many more situations where that uh, partnership is creating new solutions for our clients. So it's been a while since we've actually really been able to talk about the IPO market. And right now we have, I guess, three pretty significant IPOs in the market. Obviously, people are starting are anxious to say that the IPO market is back, but from my vantage point, it seems a little premature. How are you uh, thinking about the IPO market today and how are you advising clients as they think about potentially accessing the market probably more likely in 24? I'm probably closer to your your view uh, that it might be premature to say the IPO market is back. Certainly, I wouldn't. there's no benefit in being early in making that statement because the reality of all markets reopening, and I can recall now since we've been doing this podcast together for a few years, multiple times we've talked about a market reopening, whether it was the IPO market, the convertible market, right. the SPAC market, whatever it might have been. And I think that particularly with IPOs, we have to be careful. The IPO market is, is in many respects a derivative of the equity market in general and in, it may be going to be more specific, of volatility. When volatility and uncertainty in the market is most high, it's very hard for new issues to get done, and particularly for initial public offerings, because the pricing of an IPO has the most questions because it hasn't. you don't have a reference price. You don't have an existing security to price it off of. And so what we're seeing is with volatility having come down really since uh, the beginning of this year and settling down at a level uh, that's you know well below uh, a target that we normally think of as you need to be below twenty percent in terms of uh, you know uh, the uh, S and P volatility before you can see an IPO market start to form. We've been below that now for a while this year, and so we're starting to see some big names come forward and look at uh, coming to the IPO market. We'll know whether the market is resilient by how we price some of these high-profile deals, how they trade in the aftermarket. And then when we see some brave next issuers come forward who might be smaller, maybe a little bit less marquee names, they're not necessarily household names. When names that are, you know, I'm going to use an example, I don't really mean metal bending, but when metal bending companies, for lack of a better term, come to the market and they can be absorbed and priced, then we have a, then we have a real market. But it doesn't mean that I'm not excited to see a number of big marquee names come. That's the first test. And uh, hopefully they trade well and lead to others coming to market behind. I think give it three months. Let's get to uh, these deals get done in September. Um, we're sitting here in early November 
and those deals have been well absorbed. They're trading well. You know, others come forward. I think then for those who are a little bit less willing to be early, we'll be advising them, you know what, first quarter is probably a fair time to go. And I think if you look at the list of names, there are a lot of names who are waiting and watching to see how the next few months go, who um, are prepared to come in uh, the first quarter of next year. So we could have a very robust IPO calendar in the first half of next year, assuming the deals coming now get absorbed well. Yeah, I think that's good perspective uh, for people to think about. And David, the only, the only, I don't mean to speak, the only thing I would say, I'd add there is for those thinking about coming on the early side, the, the key when you reopen a market, and this is just as applicable if we had said the bond market had been closed for a few weeks, or if we, you know, even just secondary offerings, the first folks that come have to be priced at a bigger discount to fair value in order to attract the right buyers. Folks that come a little bit later uh, are able to uh, get done at, at tighter discounts to whatever the reference is. And so part of the trade-off that issuers have to go through and the reason why it takes a while to rebound is most people don't want to be early and be the one that has the biggest price concessions, right? And so uh, that that's one of the reasons why this tends to build slowly and it's not a crescendo. It doesn't just happen overnight. So let's shift gears and, and talk about another market that's been relatively quiet, um, but again, starting to see signs of life, including... Uh, my favorite snack food company, which was announced last night in terms of a, an acquisition. How are you thinking about the M&A market today? How is that changing and how are you advising clients to approach? You talked about uh, a specific example earlier. How are you seeing the M&A market evolve? I'll start with, the, at the moment, we're seeing a lot of trades that are driven by the trend of fit and focus. When I use the term fit and focus, it doesn't mean companies necessarily getting smaller. Some might be getting bigger, but what it does mean is that it's about portfolio repositioning. So you, you might see them in a deal where uh, it could be a public company, it could be a private company, maybe there are multiple divisions, but um, they're not at scale. They may both have, let's say, a division that is subscale and in a difficult market environment like we've been in. They start to question, why do I have this subscale business? If we combine these two subscale businesses, we get to greater pricing power. We get to a position of you know, greater overall economics. And both organizations contribute those assets. Next thing you know is you have an M&A deal where now you have a, a competitor that's better suited in the marketplace. Th that's the type of transactions that we were anticipating seeing. And you're starting to see come through the market. Sometimes it's, I sell my division to a private equity fund. Sometimes it's the private equity fund selling a business that, you know, it has some scale over to a public company that's adding to a division. But that kind of portfolio reallocation to say, we're going to come out of this most recent period and moving into the next <clears throat> stage of the economy in a stronger position than we were before is the kind of deals that we're seeing now, which is very different than the... I want to get into a new industry. I want to get into something totally different. I'm going to go buy that, you know, what I'll call much more of a euphoric type of environment that we would have seen three or four years ago. Now it's much more rooted in competitive positioning. How do I grow my margins? How do I grow top line growth, but make sure it comes down to the, the bottom line. And you're even seeing deals that might be more about cost synergies where two folks, maybe they don't see revenue, you know, top line expansion, but they think if they come together, they can drive more to the bottom line. So that's really the driver of the, the kinds of deals we're seeing today. Less financial engineering, more 
business engineering. Despite the fact the IPO market is seems to have signs of life and the M&A market seems to be getting a little bit more active, the private equity space continues to be very quiet. What are you hearing from your clients in the private equity arena? And how do you expect or how do you think that's that market's going to reemerge in the near term? I think that's a, a market where we have to talk about the, the, the different sub-markets. We, we've had this conversation before. I don't. I wouldn't say in the the lower middle market or middle market that it, it, it's dead or even dormant. I think that's continued at pace because um, some of the features that have made it very challenging at the upper ends of the private equity market, such as the backup in the leverage finance business uh, going back to last fall and the chill that had on financing, et cetera. That doesn't have the same impact in the middle market because the middle market tends to rely on private credit, um, often relies on less uh, debt levels than you would in the larger deals. So we've seen, I'd say, the middle market continued, you know, not at the same pace as before, but with significant less dislocation. In the bigger deals, uh, it's been relatively slow, to your point. What I think is changing the environment is and I'd argue this a little bit like the IPO market where we're seeing some tests now and if they go well, I think next year could be a fairly busy year is the rearview mirror, the same rearview mirror that's made it hard for folks to come forward and do IPOs because they looked at their last round and it was done at whatever, 70% higher than where they might have to get a deal done. After two years of that, right? ultimately, the, the if they want to get public, they come public even if it's at a big discount to the last round. We're going through the same thing with private equity where sellers who maybe were unwilling to sell last year, but using example, let's say their valuation would have been 12 times you know, EBITDA um, in 2021. They've had to go through a cycle before they get comfortable that their industry is now a nine times multiple industry. And the private equity folks who might've wanted to buy that company a year ago we're waiting saying, I'm not going to pay yesterday's valuations for tomorrow's value, right? And so they they had to wait. And and now we're starting to see that capitulation where the um, sellers are starting to recognize if it makes sense to sell, these are the valuation levels. And at the same time, the private equity funds are less concerned about being embarrassed and buying at the wrong price because we are seeing a stabilization in rates. That stabilization in rates means they can lock in their financing, which means they can put together their models, figure what the IRRs would be with less concern they're going to get it wrong. And so now you have a market, right? Because buyers and sellers can figure out if they can cross. And so I, we are definitely seeing that start to um, emerge. The biggest challenge at the higher end of the market, though, is still that the large syndicated loan market has not completely thawed, right? There's been some thawing. We've seen a lot of the positions that were um, brought on to folks' balance sheets in the fall and that were stuck. Um, have been, you know, begun to be sold off. So those those uh, inventories are coming down, which usually means we're getting closer to a period where we'll start seeing a pickup in in financing and deal flow. So all that leads to the like very high likelihood that going into the new year, we see a pickup in activity, inclusive of the private equity uh, uh, players. So you know, we'll see how that goes. I, I will say. The one area where private equity has continued to be pretty active, though, is in the portfolio transformation. So similar to the comment about you know fit and focus in general, um, if uh, if a private equity fund has uh, a platform 
that they bought uh, and they bought well. And the market uh, was challenged over the last 18 months. Portfolio acquisitions where taking that platform company, buying a weaker competitor um, who maybe was underfinanced. These guys have the backing, buying them, appending it to the business. We've continued to see that pretty much unabated over the last 18 months. You know, a little bit of uh, the haves and the have-nots, right? Those who have strength, uh, well, well-financed, buying competitors that, that were in a weaker position. Yeah. On other podcasts, we've talked about occasionally about other areas of the market that really don't get a lot of attention, but that clients should be aware of. Anything in the recent past that that you want to discuss in that regard? Well, I, I think the um, market or submarket that has been you know viewed to be dead over the last certainly eighteen months is uh, is the venture space. Right? We had there was so much discussion of of growth and what was going on in the venture community back in two thousand twenty and twenty one, and you know because of challenges in um, you know in technology and disruptive arenas. We've had very little dialogue about that over the last you know year plus, and I, I do think that what what we've seen is that that's starting to pick up again. Part of that is that funds, venture funds, not dissimilar from private equity funds, focusing on their existing portfolio and adding to it. Most venture capital funds have been focused on their existing portfolio. So what I think people haven't really noticed is that there's been a lot of activity, but what it's been is a sorting of, okay, which of the, the businesses that we invested in should we basically walk away from and let go? We're not going to defend it. We're not going to add more capital to it. And which are the ones that, um, while it might not be an up round, it might even be a down round in order to um, properly finance us. We're going to continue to invest because it's, it's a great business, not just great technology, but a great business. Generally, that's been companies that have found a way to significantly diminish their cash burn, or even better, have found a way to get to you know break even such that you're not funding a product, you're funding a company. And I do think that's a difference, right? Which is you know, when you start to be able to show that uh, you can um, have you know, real margins, the, the venture community uh, will continue to invest in you in, in the second, third, and fourth rounds. And so that, that's what's happening as we speak. We've seen it now for the last 12 months, but it's been mostly under the radar. And that's crowded out a lot of new investing, right? People were focusing on their portfolio. I don't think we're out of the woods on that yet, but we are starting to see the beginning of ideas getting funded, and particularly if they're in hot areas. In our prep talk, we talked about things like AI and and the such. You know, there's certain areas where not only are they, you know, getting a lot of attention, but they have the opportunity to be category killers. And in those situations. We're seeing new funding happening uh, beneath the surface, even though you don't see it widely reported. So again, I think that the the venture market has gone through a lot of um, soul searching the last 24 months, and we're on the uptick uh, there as well. I mean, if I, if I were to summarize in general, it does feel as if a, a lot of the challenges that we've gone through the last 24 months are starting to go behind us. And then the only question becomes, uh, you know, what is the new equilibrium? And, uh, you know, that maybe for another conversation, we can talk about, you know, is 2019 the right comparison? Is 2018 the right comparison? But it's not, it's clearly not the second half of 20 or the, you know, or the 2021 where there were a lot of excesses in the, in the market. 
Well, at least the good news is that we're directionally going the right way versus some, some of the recent podcasts we had, you know, back to when we were talking about Silicon Valley Bank and some of the other issues that we had earlier in the year. So that's clearly directionally we're going the right way. The challenge is how quickly and how big are we going to get there when we get there. So, And, and the one thing that, that I do think continues to be uh, an issue that's, that's hanging out there is, you know, there are new capital requirements coming for a whole host of reasons. Again, we have a whole conversation on that, that will have a restrictive element on the flow of capital, certainly bank capital. And, and if, and when the banks lend less to various parts of the, the community, that is an impact on the, on the real economy. And, uh, you know, and we're not, I don't think we're done necessarily with the regional banking challenges that we saw. Uh, you know, we have to be mindful of that, uh, and the role that both regional and community banks play certainly here in the U S so I, I do think that while we're you know optimistic, it'll be a better environment over the next 12 months than the last, it's with caution. It's cautiously optimistic because I do think there's some real headwinds. And then the last piece that it's hard to believe we have to start saying, but we're almost a year away from the the midterm, well, I'm sorry, midterm the presidential uh, and, and obviously, you know, Congress and a third of the Senate. And that's going to start taking up a lot of focus, at least in the domestic uh, markets as we start pricing in the possibilities of what that might bring. So that, that'll be a, a, um, a topic for the future as well. No question about it. Well, as always, thanks for the time. We'll pick up some more topics uh, the next during the next podcast. David, thank you. Always appreciate your, your help and conversation. Uh, and so uh, I will just uh, end by um, thanking our listeners. And of course, as I just said, thanking you for your preparation and for being a great thought leader. Thanks for joining us. Stay tuned for the next episode of TD Cowan Insights.